I'm Cody Commers, and this is Against Habit. Before getting into the conversation today, I want to start off with my own story about belief change. I think it illustrates pretty much all of the topics that my guest and I cover, as well as many of the themes in his book. The story goes on for a bit, so if you do want to skip ahead, the main interview starts at around 8 minutes and 30 seconds. I often say that the second best thing to happen to me was deciding to become a Christian, and the first best thing was deciding not to be a Christian. I didn't exactly grow up Christian, but I became a believer around age 12. I went to Christian school. Overall, I took my religious beliefs really seriously, and to me, they felt like my own. A core part of my identity as a Christian was that I was explicit about my beliefs. I didn't inherit them from my parents, nor did they feel like I was required to put them on for public appearances, like some sort of mandatory uniform. Since my school was religious, Christian doctrine was taught in the classroom, The students were all more or less believers as well, even if they were the mandatory uniform kind. We even had a teacher who taught us that evolution was not just a theory, as one sometimes hears the creationist argument framed, but a totally ludicrous idea that makes little rational sense when subjected to true, unindoctrinated scrutiny. Then, in college, I started to modify some beliefs, all of which traditionally are not held by Christians, but all of which I felt were compatible with a biblical worldview. The first was evolution. This one was easy, even if you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. If God hasn't created the sun and the moon yet, then who's to say that a day is only 24 hours long? These seven days of creation in Genesis could have taken place over billions of years, guided by the hand of God. So evolution was fairly easy to add into my worldview. The second was determinism. This one is also pretty easily squared with Christianity, maybe even a more conservative interpretation of the Bible. In theology, the debate is often presented as Calvinism versus Arminianism. Calvinists believe in predestination. God, being all-knowing, knows ahead of time who is going to heaven and who isn't. He's God. He can't not know. The Arminianists, by contrast, believe in free will. God being all-loving, can't create some people just to send them to hell and therefore shields his otherwise all-knowingness from whether or not a person's heart will turn toward him. Arminianism sounds nice, but come on. Calvinism is clearly the more defensible theological position. So when I came to believe that free will is an illusion, it didn't pose any issue to my faith. The third and most difficult to square was physicalism. This is the philosophical position that all physical events have physical causes. In other words, there's nothing in the physical universe that needs some outside force to explain it. In particular, there is no immaterial soul that explains the essence of human behavior. Whenever I told Christians about this belief, they were usually taken aback. But what about resurrection? How would that work without an immaterial soul, if we were all just atoms, cells, and chemistry? To which I would usually reply that the logistics of resurrection were indeed mysterious under physicalist assumptions, but it was no less mysterious than dualistic assumptions, just less familiar. 
For instance, how does an immaterial soul, for which there is no evidence of interaction with the human brain and is not necessary for a complete explanation of human behavior, contain the essence of a person in any meaningful way? How, for that matter, would such a soul migrate from our own physical universe into some alternate universe of heaven or hell while still retaining some resemblance to the essence of its original host? It may have been a non-standard belief, but I didn't view it as one that created new problems, just reframed old ones. And so for a while, I held on to these three additional beliefs, as well as my belief in the core tenets of biblical Christianity about Jesus being our Savior. The change in beliefs themselves was not enough for me to disregard Christianity as a whole. There was another piece that was necessary. I'd always been a part of Christian groups, and throughout high school, that association was pretty strong. But in college, the Christian group I joined never quite seemed to click for me. I spent a lot of time with the people in the group. I even lived on an apartment floor where everyone was a member of this group. But I always felt like I was on the outside. In fact, on a one-on-one level, I felt much more connected to my friends who weren't believers. The main exception was my girlfriend at the time, who was herself close to everyone in that inner circle. Then, one day, she broke up with me. The reason cited was insufficient Jesus-mindedness, which really offended me at the time because I considered myself very Jesus-minded, but it was my first major breakup, and it hit me really hard. I found it difficult to let go. On two separate occasions, I asked her to take me back, and I doubt Her version of the story employs the verb to ask in quite the same manner, but eventually it became clear we were not getting back together. That was January 21st, 2013. I remember that date because it was the day I decided I would no longer be a Christian. I officially disbelieved in the Jesus narrative that it held as a defining core belief for so many years. At the time, I figured that even if I was going to be a Christian in the long run, it'd be a more effective one, knowing what it was truly like to live life as an unbeliever. Either way, it was time to take these new philosophical perspectives I had adopted as my central beliefs rather than the teachings of the Bible. The thing that stands out to me about that story looking back was that it wasn't the intellectual change that ultimately flipped my religious belief. It was the social change. Most people I grew up with who remained Christian, their friends are all Christian. Their parents and siblings are Christian. There's a huge social cost to altering that belief. But after my breakup, I found myself no longer having to face that social cost. I had removed the social barriers, and I could make the decision based on my own intellectual conclusions. From this experience, I learned that, in general, people don't form their beliefs for intellectual reasons— They form them for social reasons. And that is one of the central themes of the latest book from my guest today, David McGraney. It is called How Minds Change. In it, David looks at the cutting scientific edge in the field of psychology as it relates to belief change. He follows some stories of belief change much more dramatic than my own. For example, ex-members of the Westboro Baptist Church and formerly prominent conspiracy theorists. The book was a ton of fun to read, and I highly recommend checking it out. Even as someone who reads quite a bit of nonfiction on cognitive and social psychology, there was a lot in there that I hadn't encountered before, and a handful of reframings which really put old subjects into new light for me. So if you are not yet subscribed to my newsletter, you can get all the latest updates on my work at againsthabit.com. 
Thank you for listening. Here is David McGrady. So David, the first question that I want to ask you in response to reading your book is, are we all in a cult? Are we all in a cult? Wow. What a, what a wild question. Um, I would say that there is a, there are a series of nature, nurture, psychological mechanisms. Some of them have uh, straight up biological underpinnings that for that, for the sake of doing this sort of thing, where we are ultra social primates and as such, ultra-social primates are eager to discover the us versus them part of their existence and will use all sorts of cues and all sorts of uh, novel and ambiguous things that are around them to develop a better sense of social identity. And thanks to the internet, we have the ability to group up over things very quickly and to group up over just about anything. And as the work of Henri Tajfel, which we can get into, describes... There's no minimal group paradigm. We will instinctively group up in seconds over anything, no matter how arbitrary or minimal. And to that extent, yeah, we're all members of uh, bazillions of groups to which we might find some sort of social identity. And usually among that, there's a few that are really strong. For some people, it might be, I'm a vegan. And it's not just that I am a vegan, I identify as a vegan. Uh, it could be, I'm a gamer. Uh, uh, I love, uh, I'm a cinephile. I um, love, um, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a wine connoisseur, or it could be something to the extent of anything that has the ER at the end of it. I'm a flat earther. I'm a truther. I'm a birther, uh, or I'm a golfer for some people being a golfer is an identity It identifies you as an us and not of them. It's those things that, that show the other people in your group that you are part of that group. And those same mechanisms are the mechanisms that in certain circumstances, a confluence of uh, inputs and strange circumstances will lead somebody into a cult, a pseudo cult, a conspiratorial community, or a very extreme political ideology. But at the end of the day, it's the same psychological mechanisms at play. They just have to be put into play in a certain way that leads you into one of those particular groups. So kind of, sort of is my short version of that. <laughs> a, cult, a cult, you know, by definition is a group that... Uh, you suffer incredible costs for leaving and they also isolate you from all the other groups in your life. Uh, they make sure that the only, you're only getting input from one particular uh, set of people and that you're beholden to only one particular set of people. So uh, the other side of that is unless you're in a group like that, then you wouldn't be by what is the very fuzzy definition of a cult by uh, psychological uh, standards. I've been studying Henri Tajfel's work for a long time. In fact, he was one of the reasons why I switched out of cognitive science into social psychology for my PhD. So there's a lot in that explanation that I've been thinking about for a long time. But one of the things that I found myself reflecting on while reading your book was this kind of question about, okay, um, let's, let's try and take this seriously. Are we all just sitting around here buying into values that are fundamentally meaningless and believe in them ultimately because they're not, not, not necessarily because they're rationally defensible, but because the people around us believe them? And so that's, uh, in as much as your distinction of, of, of the actual parameters of a cult are, are uh, very much merited in this situation, that's kind of the, the sort of one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, looking at myself while I was reading your book. Yeah, I mean, it, 
I didn't, that was never my intention. You know, my intention in the book was, I just want to understand how people change their minds in really drastic ways. And because same-sex marriage was something that, that, that I couldn't get over how quickly the country changed in that regard. And when I first started looking into what happens in a person's brain, when they go from thinking in one way to another, I was, was wondering, like, if you took somebody from now or, or at the moment that, that the majority opinion flipped in the United States, which is around 2013, somewhere in there, you, the, just a few years before, 60% of the country was opposed, and then 60% then of the country was in favor. And I was imagining taking one of those people back 10 years and meeting themselves when they held the other opinion, and the, then they had that other attitude. And all the beliefs that they that seem to support it, like would they argue with themselves? Surely, and would they argue to the point that they might exhaust each other because, like, oh, y'all never see things my way. And but then ten years later, they did see things differently. And I wanted to know what happened in their brain and what influenced that change, and how does that scale all the way up to something like an entire country? And that's where I that was the entry point. And well, the first people I interviewed was Jim Alcock, who's a belief researcher, and he had like 35, 40 years of experience. And my first question was like, this because my idea was like, I'm going to write a book where I'm just going to talk to the experts, tell you what the experts told me, make it fun to read, go through the literature and so on. So I asked, what is a belief? And he honestly went, ah, that is a tough one. And I felt like, oh my, what am I going to do? Like, he said it was hard to explain because he had studied it for so long that he couldn't give me a, a, a concrete definition. And so I went back to the drawing board and thought, okay, the better way to go about this is go meet people who've changed their minds in drastic ways or people who attempt to do so, who are in groups that do that, and then talk to experts who study all these things, and then I'll get a better picture. So go out on the road first, then come back to experts what I, with my stories, have them explain them to me. And one of the first people I wanted to talk to was someone who had left the conspiratorial community. And when I took that story to people like uh, Dan Cahan and Liliana Mason and uh, Joseph Uzinski and Annie Sternisco and all these incredible people, Henri Tajfel kept coming up. And uh, I started to feel like, oh, there's something else that this book is going to be about. And that's how that started becoming a, a, a through line through the story. Yeah. And one of the fun aspects of reading your book is that it does look at these very dramatic instances of belief changes where you're starting off in this group that's, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church or, you know, these kind of really out there dramatic conspiracy theorists. And um, those are really fun instances to hear about. Um, and we'll definitely talk about some of those in a sec. And I think the Tajfell piece is crucial because it suggests that there's not something that is a phase shift from the normal groups that were involved in every day uh, to these kind of kind of egregious instances of these cult-like groups and everything. But in fact, uh, they're part of the same continuum and the same intergroup psychology and the same buying into the values and surrounding yourself with people who believe them. And that's definitely a lot of what I've been sort of thinking about it from, from my own pers uh, perspective is taking some of the sharp instances that you bring up in those really drastic examples and bringing them uh, to sort of bear on more everyday instances of, of group belief and that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, the it's um, I think that when you're we're in a particular culture, uh, you and I, I uh, and probably many people listening. If you're in the West, if you're in the United States, especially if you're in the 21st century, and uh, if you're where I'm from, like we actually have a lot of listeners nice. coming in from the 22nd century. So please keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm hoping that this, this this podcast lasts. Is what I'm saying. Like like uh, I want people to hear this 100 years from now. Uh, but no, thanks for catching me on that. The uh, <laughs> the um, I think that. Right now, in this current moment, in this current culture, uh, we're we just we're very we're very individualistic in a very particular way, and you want to believe that all your thoughts and your you want to believe all your beliefs and all your attitudes and all your values were something that you went down into some sort of uh, wizard cellar, like you're a, a, a Gandalf or something, and and in your castle and you go to your room of scrolls with your uh, candle and you carefully read everything and go, aha, this is what I think about X. And then you write that down and that's how your beliefs come from. Like it's all from rational, logical, deep contemplation and, and consideration as, and then you go out in the world and when people say, why do you think this? You, you give them this reason why you think it that you, and the idea that there was a social influence involved or that, the social influence was the primary thing that motivated you that you are. And I know it's, it's over said to say signaling in right now, but the idea that you are appealing to your in group by rationalizing and justifying things in a way that they would consider reasonable. That is something that we, we rejected because it feels really gross. If you're from a very individualistic culture that, that, you want to feel that you are sort of a hermit out there in the woods chopping and saying, okay, I, I, this is who I am. This is what I am. Other people don't influence me, but it's so clear. You can't study uh, psychology or especially social psychology. It's right there in the name uh, without realizing that ain't how it works, everybody. And Brooke Harrington, the, the sociologist told me that the, E equals MC square of social science is that social death, the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. Like in other words, if you, and I, I talk a lot in metaphors, if you ever watch Star Trek Next Generation, I'm very Darmok and, and uh, Jalad of this kind of stuff. <laughs> you, the, that, 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 that equation she came up with is like imagining if the ship's going down, you put your reputation on the lifeboat and you just go down with the ship. And she said that pretty much in any situation where we're faced with that uh, risk versus reward scenario, that's where we'll go. But it's hard to accept and to see that. It's very strange that it's not apparent and it's not salient in a lot of situations. And you clearly don't want to admit it to yourself that that's where all this is coming from. But the research very much supports it. I'm in my late 20s. And, you know, so I know a lot of people in that age range. And in your late 20s, you know, most people are kind of like settling into some sort of definable track. You know, they've made some sort of life decisions or commitments. They're not just sort of like freshmen trying out possible majors. And I found that when I try to reconnect with people who I knew from 10 years ago and have taken a very different life track, I kind of look at what they're doing and I, you know, kind of have this reaction often that is like, gosh, is that what you're really into? And, you know, the easiest box is kind of to put it into the one that, that kind of feels like, okay, well, this is kind of culty, but, but, um, it, 
I think that's in line with what you're saying about, you know, we all are going into these different social groups and we underestimate the extent to which ours is a delineable social group and overestimate the extent to which everyone else kind of fits into some from the outside strange looking box. And then so I kind of take that idea and I I start to look at my own path and it's incredibly easy for me to admit that academia is just about the biggest cult of all, of all the non-cults <laughs> at least. Uh, it's got all the signs though, of everything you were talking about from, you know, it's incredibly demanding of its members. It doesn't really want you to talk to outside individuals. It's organized hierarchically around these, you know, big established figures who, by the way, no one outside of the field has actually heard of. There is little to no concrete reward for joining except recognition within the circle, ranking based on combination of longevity and arbitrary point scoring system that is uh, racking up scientific papers. Um, but anyway, so it's really easy for me to look at my own group, uh, if you want to call that even my group anymore, because I'm not really going to be an academic when I grow up. But at any rate, it's kind of looking like, okay, is that like that we're all doing some version of that where we buy into some sort of thing that from the outside looks pretty silly, but from the inside feels really meaningful because you're surrounded by people who think that it's really meaningful. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and I want you to know, academia will live on in your heart for all times. Uh, oh, God. So uh, <laughs> um, I got two ideas when you, when you were talking about this. They used to when they did cult deprogramming, which uh, I, I had a chapter about it in the book. We took it out because, honestly, it was the darkest thing I've ever written. And at that point in the book, it felt like, oh, I thought you were making me feel uh, hopeful. And then you would throw this at me. Uh, and then the whole point of the chapter was to say cult deprogramming isn't a real thing. Uh, it doesn't work. It's just kidnapping people and coercing them, and um, and brainwashing is is a, a pseudo scientific concept. And I, I wanted to talk about it, but there wasn't really a place for it. Instead, I took out the the most important ideas in there and put them in the introduction. Um, but in that, when they when that was the thing, and they were trying to just to say what are the principles of being in a cult, um, the principles were uh, control the flow of information so the person's isolated from society. Um, make every action by the authority figures seem as if they are the are, are coming from some sort of higher than them authority. Um, make the world seem kind of black and white in the sense that there's good and evil in the world and that you're on the good side. Um, and then if you stray from the group, you're straying from sort of a a an environment that influences you to become more pure, more more uh, more authentic in some way. And uh, you. You take those as principles of cults, and it's so easy to go. Well, that's pretty much every group that is, right? <laughs> but it, it's it, there. There are clearly other things that go into it. That's why I almost do the Jim Alcock thing, where I'm like, I don't know if I can give you even a definition of this thing. It's a. It's better if we zoom out a little bit, and I think we're asking the wrong question. And say, what influences people to be to pursue to pursue belonging goals instead of other goals, and that leads me to the second idea about academia. Like, I think that it's very clear that when a person is uh, gets into a, any kind of group or community or where they have a, they're forming that, that group identity, that social identity, and that all these tribal triggers are, are coming up and influencing that you will pursue belonging goals over accuracy goals. Most of the time, that's how you end up being a flat earthers are always pursuing belonging over accuracy and they'll go in that direction. But this all seems like this is bad, but there's a, a lot of evidence that one, when people discuss things in groups, um, if if everybody's in a good faith environment, 
if one person does see things differently than the others, if that group allows for it, that they can bring the whole group into consensus on things and, and that, that it can make them more right than wrong or pursue better goals than they would have alone. But also you can't not pursue these belonging goals. So one good thing about really great academic groups is that they and institutions is that they've created this world of social rewards and social costs for demonstrating to the other members that you are pursuing accuracy goals. And uh, there's plenty of caveats here. There's plenty of ways that this gets all messed up. And there's all sorts of things from the file drawer effect to, you know, um, all the studies come out seem to, well, it looks like they keep confirming the hypothesis more than, you know, there's a lot of that, but there is at least something within that institution that says, we're all going to tear you apart and it, we will get rewarded if we show that you're wrong and that we didn't do your due diligence. So there is at least something in there where you're leveraging the social aspect of what we are for a goal that seems to get us more right than wrong over time in a way that we you know, go to the moon and stuff. So there is at least that. Your counterpoints to my flippant use of the word cult are all well taken. <laughs> um, so let's let's talk about some of the the concrete stuff that you bring up in the book. So I think my favorite story was the one about the uh, canvassers in California, the Learn Act Build campaign from the Los Angeles LGBT Center, and their concept called deep canvassing. So can you say a little bit about that group and what they learned about deep canvassing? One of the things that was very unexpected in this project was I wanted to go to all these different groups that that uh, go out into the world and attempt to persuade people. They now some of the groups don't consider what they're doing persuasion; they just consider it a conversational technique. But um, in each one of them, persuasion often is the outcome. And I was struck by I, I've met people in deep canvassing, uh, the people in smart politics, uh, street epistemology therapeutic models like motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, things that were very just created by people who had experienced it, like the people who had left Westbury Baptist Church, they have sort of a a step-by-step method they advocate. What I found was that all these groups, even if they hadn't met each other, uh, and none of them had until I introduced them to each other, and they hadn't met each other, and most of them weren't aware of any of the literature that supported what they were doing, they all came up with pretty much the same thing and in the same thing in the same order, even when they put it into a list of do this first, do this second, same order every time too. That was absolutely astonishing. And I opened the book with uh, deep canvassing and the, the way this started was the LGBT center of Los Angeles uh, has this group within it called the lab LAB learn, act, build. And they're called the leadership lab. And they're the political action uh, wing of the organization. They they try to come up with ways to reach out to communities and affect laws, laws that they uh, see as being oppressive to LGBTQ people. And they are very clear, you know, we have a bias. We believe that's wrong. We believe that the world should not do that. And we want to uh, affect people's attitudes in that regard in a way that will lead to change politically. And they had dealt with their horrible defeat uh, for Prop 8 this uh, the way back um, in the previous decade. They, the uh, California voted to make same-sex marriage, you know, illegal, and 
that was astonishing to many people there, like, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and so on, the, this was a state that people from other parts of the country would move to because they were, it was so gay friendly. It was this place where the, you could see that this is where change was taking place more rapidly than others. The, the idea that this state would vote against it was astonishing. And they were very crestfallen. They were gutted by this. And the, the head of the leadership lab, Dave Fleischer, wanted to understand, well, why did that happen? And he was like, what if we just went around and asked? And it was a, it was a wild idea. They, they put together groups of people in these listening, they, they called them um, listening brigades. They were like, sometimes up to 75, more than 100 people. They would go out into areas of the city in Los Angeles where polling indicated this is where people were likely the people who voted against the, the, the issue. And they would just go door to door and ask them, why did you vote against it? And they just, they had no real intention except just to gather evidence. And in doing so, they, the, they found that people were really eager to just talk. And they re started recording the conversations for their own research. And in, after doing a few thousand of these, they noticed that sometimes people would change their own minds in the conversation without being asked to. And they isolated those and tried to understand what was going on there. And then they said, why don't we take it to the next level and go out and try to A-B test this and do what we did in those conversations and not do what we did in the ones where people got more entrenched. And by the time I met them, they had already done 15,000 conversations, recorded them on video and went through them like you would like a, like a football game to try to see what you did right and wrong. A-B tested it, iterated and reached this place where they had this method that is so successful that social scientists were flying out there to observe them. And here's what they do. And it's going to sound like this can't possibly be effective, but it is astonishing. I've watched so many of their videos and seen people do this, where they will talk themselves out of their own position. It's all in how you approach the situation and how you ask questions. And it's very similar to something in uh, psychology called motivational interviewing. You open by simply a, a establishing rapport. You assure the other person you're not out to shame them in any way. You ask for their consent to explore how, what they think about the issue, what their opinions are. And the other person is almost, most of us are very eager. To, if you ask, you know, what did you think about the last uh, um, Marvel movie? People will usually be very, very okay with telling you, talking to you for five minutes straight about it if you give them the space. And so we're all very eager to do something like this, especially on a contentious issue. And then they open with this, they ask, and this was, this was because they needed it for research purposes, but it turns out to be some, one of the most incredible parts of it is you just ask, how strongly do you feel about the issue? Or if you're thinking about your intent to behave in the future, like if you were going to vote on this tomorrow, how would you vote? And they ask on a scale from either zero to 10 or one to 100 or something like that. And when the person gives the answer, they then ask, well, why does that number feel right to you? And it takes the conversation out of a binary, I, I, I'm right, you're wrong, or um, where uh, I need to win and you need to lose kind of thing to where do I stand on my like confidence? Where's my attitude at on this? And it's often something we've never done. Like I can think about all so many things I've never even thought about doing this. Like how much do I like, you know, 
grilled cheese sandwiches from a one to 10. And I would think, oh, they're pretty good. I'd give them like a eight. I'm like, well, how come an eight? And then all when you start trying to produce all your justifications and rationalizations and your explanations and your reasoning for it, what are the plausible reasons for why I would hold that level of uh, the attitude? Or if I say, I, how likely are you to vaccinate? Like a one to 10, like, so if somebody says I'm a five and you ask why a five, why not a four? Why not a three? How come you're not totally against it? That conversation is something that a lot of people find like it's incredibly empowering to kind of discover why you feel that way about something. And then they will, in deep canvassing, they share a story about someone who is negatively affected by the issue at play. And then they ask the person for the scale for the second time. And if the person moves, they then ask, why did they move? Which opens it up again. So you start discovering, oh, I may have old some prejudices in here that I wasn't aware of. And then once they've offered their reasoning in the way, you just do a good job of repeating it back, reflecting, summarizing, paraphrasing, and repeat it. And it's uh, at some point you say, was there ever a time in your life when you didn't feel that way? And you start discovering where this stuff comes from. And if it's received wisdom or it came from some sort of uh, someone who asked you to act this way, or it's a social thing, it starts becoming more aware to you. And you just listen and you summarize and you repeat. And that is how it works. Um, other techniques do things that are a little bit more uh, like granular and pointed, but and get more into sort of Socratic method type things. But all of them do one thing, which is uh, no, empathetic, non-judgmental listening, holding a space, and then guided metacognition in the sense that let's get that number scale out there and see if you could introspect in a way where you can discover why it, you might be motivated to hold this particular place, this, this, hold this belief into the certainty or this attitude, this level. And it's astonishing that allowing a person to do that often leads them to update their position on the matter, move a little bit on one of these scales. And it's actually it's super incredible to watch. I found this to be one of the most interesting, engaging, surprising, and compelling chapters I've read in a pop psych book in a long time. So uh, thank you for doing the reporting on that. And you'll have to forgive me if you brought up pretty much all of my favorite concepts in psychology that I think are undervalued and should be talked about more. So you'll have to forgive me if I want to unpack at length a lot of the stuff that you that you bring up in this example. I'm uh, very okay with it. But I <laughs> could tell that maybe I might be obsessed with it. <laughs> I, no, I mean, but like there's, there's so much here. So, okay, so here's one thing. Um... Basically, you know, so my background is in psychology. I'm doing my PhD in, in social psychology. I did my undergraduate undergraduate in cognitive science. And there was this moment after I graduated from undergraduate where I was working in another cognitive science lab. And I had what I think of as this really big moment of loss of innocence. And that moment came when I started to explore other behavioral sciences outside of psychology in particular, anthropology and sociology. And the thing that really scandalized me about becoming interested in these subjects was that they were interested in pretty much all the same big questions about human behavior. But in constructing their answers, they didn't appeal at all to individual human minds to make their point. And as someone whose background is in cognitive science, I was like, what the hell? How can, like, I mean, how can you? What, that's just a non-starter. But uh, it made me begin to think that, okay, well, maybe individual minds are not actually this almighty sort of substance and that there's a kind of way that 
um, you know, this, if you're a psychologist and, and, uh, you might admit like, okay, well, yeah, the mind is made up of atoms, but I don't study atoms because it's not the right level of like granularity to tell me about what I want to really, what I really want to know. And so there's something about this whole social group thing that for sociologists, anthropologists, et cetera, they're like, yeah, okay. Individual minds, definitely a thing, but not really the core, um, the core substance that I'm after. And I think that kind of perspective, although different, and of course your book, uh, definitely takes psychological research seriously and covers, you know, sort of relevant psychological research, uh, on, on this front. I think it's a little bit of a similar journey of discovery where there's a kind of realization of like, oh shit, well, if I really want to understand this aspect of behavior, I need to look not just within the internal contents of a mind and how the sort of clockwork turns in there and how the gears of rationality all fit together, but this larger context into which minds are embedded. And um, yeah, there's, there's something about that where it's not a rejection of psychology, but it is, as you said in your, in your first two books, it was really, okay, like let's go into the, the mechanisms of mind that are related to rationality and irrationality. And this book, part of the progress that it makes is opening up the discourse for stuff that just goes beyond the sort of standard ways we think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Then for me, as someone who was like, I was getting a lot of value out of trying to understand what it means to be a person through mostly a psychological or social psychological lens and then dipping deep into neuroscience and things you know that i really didn't understand about it to reach out to political scientists and and social uh sociologists like you're like you're saying and, and anthropologists that uh, biologists network scientists I, I was astonished at how many network scientists people who study mainly they use the you know things we're doing online that allow us to quantify human interaction the way we couldn't before um, people, uh, epidemiologists who, uh, use like the, uh, that, that famous Farmingham heart study where they've studied the social connections of these thousands of people in this one area for so long and watched how a person's attitude, uh, or a person's, uh, the, the, the way they behave will slowly and then quickly and then cascade influence everyone around them. I was astonished how much of this I wasn't getting out of just hardcore straight up studying people in isolation sort of ways. And one of my, I, I consider it like a peanut butter and chocolate of comeuppance that I, uh, uh, I wasn't aware so much that a lot of the things I'd written about in the past, I was saying, this is something that's true about people based off studies where people were being studied individually in isolation. And there are a lot of things that people, uh, we, we say that they're irrational in a very particular way because they solve problems in a way that, um, are so, you know, they, they fall into motivated reasoning so quickly and they're so quick to go to, to use, to employ confirmation bias and so on. But that's if they're alone. Like if you take that same, something from the cognitive reflection task or something and you give people that or the Waysons uh, selection task, any of those that, those go-tos where you say, look how silly people are. Um, yeah, they're silly if you take a bunch of individuals and then you pretend that all those individuals as a group indicate something that people do as as is if they are in a group but they're not in a group they're isolated you take that same uh test and you give it to people in a place where they can discuss it amongst each other and the people who get it right among the group will then employ all these persuasion techniques that come to us naturally all these argumentative things these deliberative things and then they will the group will then flip to being 
if they were in isolation, you'd say all those people together as a group were majority wrong. But if they talk to each other and there's an ability for them to have this sort of good faith discussion, they'll flip each other over time to being majority correct. Same question, different outcome, different assumption about how people work. And that's something that I was really in that other camp until I got into this research. Yeah, yeah. And this other thing you mentioned about these buckets, these silos of investigation, it reminds me of Robert Zapolsky and has this great like thought experiment thing he does. Uh, he does it in his lectures. He does it in, in Behave, his great book, uh, where he's like, why the chicken crossed the road? And he's like, well, what time scale are we talking about? And you know, if we're talking about within a couple of milliseconds, we're going to have to talk about neurons firing. Uh, if we're talking about uh, a, a little longer than that, we got to talk about sensory inputs and stuff like that. And then, then we've, the next, you know, once we get into a second, a couple more seconds, we're talking about hormones. And then you keep expanding out the timescales, and we're going to have to start getting into psychological things, behavior and experiences and priors. And then eventually we get to a little bit longer timescales. We're going to be talking about uh, the, ver the version of social influence that's true about chickens. And then you get into like very long time scales and we're going to get incredibly evolutionary and about natural selection and things that are in, that uh, risk rewards and th things that are, that are, that are going the more in the direction of selfish genes and all this sort of thing. And the idea that to the, you can't describe anything that happens when it comes to thoughts, feelings, or behaviors within one particular silo, or you get into categorical thinking, which he says is great for describing things, but not great for understanding things. And that's become more clear, more and more clear over time as I get into talking about stuff like this. And uh, I like the idea that I, I'm very obsessed currently with this concept of articulating the ineffable in that when you take a very complicated concept, you can shrink it down to one word that we all agree upon, like the ennui or angst or something. And then you, or something like pluralistic ignorance, which is this such a complex idea that we can shrink it down to two words if we're all on the same page. And then I can take that and make it a brick and a much more complex idea. And then I can do the same thing again and shrink it back down. And as you can, that's, that works there, that is uh, catalyzed when you have lots of different silos trying to articulate something. And it could be a movie like uh, Ex Machina attempts to explore something that is if after you watch it, you feel like you have a better vocabulary for the idea. And then I've seen that that movie be discussed across many different silos. Sociologists will talk about it in one way, psychologists in another and so on. And then each one can then take that and pull it into another discussion that can refer to each other. And so all of these groups doing this simultaneously brings us into a better articulation of the idea that we can then shrink down and make it to the next idea. And I think that is phenomenal and fascinating and i'm jamming out on it too man <laughs> so let me try and summarize some of what you just said because you covered a lot of topics there and i want to make sure i understood uh some of the core things that you were touching on there um so one of the things and you make this argument in one of the chapters of your book is that there's a lot that we can point to in human intelligence and particularly like common Tversky style aha got you bias kind of like studies uh, where we show quote unquote errors in, in human judgment. Those are instances where human intelligence doesn't make sense as an individual. But in your example, if we put people together 
in groups if we allow people to bounce the contents of their mind off the contents of other individuals' minds, then actually a lot of that stuff starts to fit in as puzzle pieces in this larger thing. And that's actually the setting in which our minds evolved and therefore the, in a way, more appropriate arena to evaluate them in. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot that I really like about that. And I think that that's a a fascinating, I mean, definitely there's a kind of um, wisdom of groupiness uh, to that idea, but um, I thought that way of conveying it uh, definitely gave a fresh edge to a lot of familiar work on, on that front. Um, yeah, and and, yeah. and Tom Stafford's doing this work right now. Like, I, I, I he's taking the ways and selection task and um, giving it to groups of people online in in, in 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 like a text message kind of way, and then he's doing it in these uh, controlled environments that simulate what it's like to be on like Facebook or something. And his hypothesis is that it, it's not only true that people this whole interactionist model of uh, human reasoning. It's not just true that we produce arguments in one way and we evaluate them in another. And there's basically two different psychological mechanisms at play. The production side of it's very biased and lazy, but the evaluation side is much more meticulous. And if you argue alone, you're doing mostly production and very little evaluation. And if you put people in a bunch of little pods where they all they do is produce arguments, and then you let those pods, uh, the output of those pods pile up, you get pretty much what the internet is most of the time, which is a big pile of uh, biased and lazy reasoning. And the evaluation process, that's not as, as incentivized, or uh, the contexts don't really aren't very amenable to that as much as they are the evaluation side of things. And his hypothesis is that it's similar to what happened in a lot of this psychological research. So what if you tried to create a context in which people could deliberate in the way that they do in the experiments that have indicated that when people uh, discuss things in groups, they get different outcomes from these old cognitive reflection tasks. And uh, that's his, his great hypothesis is a very optimistic concept that if you tweak the knobs on the way we're interacting in this new information ecosystem, you'll get something more akin to what he calls the truth wins scenario, where people can debate things in a way where they can reach better conclusions. They get more closer to the outcomes that, that, that match what a person would do in a good faith argumentative frame. And I'm interested to see the outcome of all that work. Oh yeah. Wow. That sounds super fascinating. Yeah. He's great. He's a, and, and I love, and I love Thomas Stafford also because for a lot of reasons, but he gave me this, this incredible little like, anecdote that I, I I was the last thing I put in the book because he, he I was talking to him about the work and he, he told me this and I was like oh that's got to be in there somewhere because he said uh the um germs were always I'm paraphrasing the best I can remember germs were always a problem in he for humans uh especially in groups but they became a an existential crisis whenever we had cities and to solve this the problem of plagues and outbreaks and stuff we had to at the level of the city develop sanitation at the level of the individual best practices like washing your hands and boiling your water and we he said that now uh misinformation information exchange itself it's always been a problem for human beings especially in groups uh misinformation and and you know determining trust and so on but with the internet and the domain the social media and everything else that goes along with it um 
that's now become an existential crisis for us. And we're going to have to develop the generational equivalent when it comes to information of sanitation and washing your hands. And that's one of the, he just said that off the top of his head. And I was like, oh my God, did you just, that just come out of your mind? That was incredible. So I made sure that I in the book. Okay, so David, uh, here's something for you. Have you ever heard of this concept called threshold models of behavior? I have, and I uh, it's weirdly where I uh, the book started. Yeah, totally right. That, that that's what it reminded me of is that that's your kind of one of your opening uh, lines in the book is about why collective opinion uh, shifts so quickly. So yeah, what's your yeah. And there, there are a couple of things. It's, it's similar to what we were talking about earlier. There's uh, in different academic silos, there's different phrases for this. There's the critical juncture theory. There's the threshold models of resistance. Uh, there is punctuated equilibrium in, um, in biology, but it's as a, as a process, it's very similar. Um, right. It, and that's one of the ones that you uh, uh, draw on more heavily in, in the book is the, the yeah, I thought that was easier to make sense of. And then if you critical juncture theory is, is uh, even reading a book that tries its best, it's tough to wrap your head around. So I, I thought that uh, uh, the punctuated equilibrium would be a much easier to understand because in, when it comes to speciation, when it comes to evolution in general, you have these long stretches of sameness, this uh, long stretches where body types, phenotypes, they, they, they don't change very much. Uh, and they, there's a, it's, it can, be, can almost be seen as like status, a status quo of some kind. And then you'll have these rapid moments of, of lots of evolution, lots of uh, phenotypical change and lots of body type changes, which of course, from that will come all sorts of new kinds of behaviors and things and speciation and so on. And it, and it has this sort of pattern of punctuated equilibrium. It's pretty much lo- long stretches of sameness punctuated by a very rapid change. And looking at the uh, history of social change, especially in the United States, similar pattern. Lots of lots of long periods of status quo with very rapid pockets of change that, la- that usually take place on time scales of about 12 years or so. And there's a, a, a book uh, uh, by... Um, uh, Shapiro and uh, uh, the other man's name escapes me right now, but they, they had this great book about tracking all the, they didn't try to explain it. They just tracked all the different social changes like that. And they all had kind of that same time scale. Things like uh, suffrage and civil rights and smoking norms and marijuana norms and all these things. You'd have this long periods of, of status quo, then very fast change, then back to a new status quo. Um, I this was what I thought I was going to write a book about, but it turned out that it was just the beginning of a long investigation. But I reached out to people like Duncan Watts. Um, I reached out to uh, uh, Savelle and people who did uh, who, who write and think about cascade effects. Um, looked at all the old literature and into the things like um, diffusion and uh, um, early adoption and, and all these sorts of things that they all uh, this this beautiful world of network science that describes if you think of he- each individual human being as a, a sort of a node, like a like one of those old uh, like a, in a chemistry classroom molecule models where there's a you have balls connected with sticks. Um, just think of a network in that way. Each each person each person is a node, and then how they their relationship their connection to the other person in, in the network has there's a line going to them. There's strong connections and weak connections in there. People you kind of sort of know and people who you would help move uh, that strong and weak. And there's clusters. There are people, these people will uh, 
you have all these different institutions and families and um, pockets of places where people are in clusters. They grew up, they spend a lot, they spend more, they spend time together, but they spend more time with each other than they do others, but they have connections to other groups where there's a, a member of that group who also spends a lot of time in another group. And so you have, if you zoom out, it gets this sort of a uh, galaxy um, <clears throat> sort of zooming out of the universe feel where you have uh, all these little, this network, but when you zoom out, you see, oh, it's a network of clusters of networks. And within that, each person has a threshold of conformity or a threshold of resistance, just thresholds, basically, where um, they will not copy another person's behavior or take on a new idea. They won't change their mind, basically, um, until they reach some sort of threshold of resistance to such things. And the way I talk about it in the book is, if you've ever been trying to get into a college classroom, because this happened to me before, uh, where you you arrive and there's a bunch of people waiting to get in, and you're like, you're like, okay, and you just stand there with them, and then the door opens up and the professor's like, what are you doing? And like the classroom's empty, and then everybody's like, oh, and they walk to go in. I've had that happen to me more than once, and I was astonished that this is described in the work of people like Duncan Watts, where uh, who is a sociologist who is a network scientist. So you. The first person that arrives is, is basing their decisions and their behavior and their thoughts and their beliefs, all the stuff they're, that's are basing what they're going to do next off of internal signals. They arrive, they have probably had a, a history where maybe something weird happened when they walked into a classroom and there was the class was still going. They might also have this nature nurture experience, life, biopsychosocial thing where they are just a timid person in some way. Um, they could just be busy. They may not, have, they can't go in because they're in the middle of a conversation on their phone. Whatever it is, they arrive at the door and they stop and stand there, but it's all internal signals. They're not basing it off of what they have observed in that environment. Then the next person that shows up, well, they have a person to base things on and we're social primates. So that's going to be considered valuable information. They have at least this external signal of one person waiting. So all their stuff is going to come into play too, but they have this additional piece of information that's going to be very influential and that can push them over the edge of saying, well, I'm not going to go in the class because there's a person here. And this is going to keep happening because now you have two people and the next person that shows up is like, well, there's got to be a reason these two people are waiting. And it, for most people, there's a, your threshold of conformity or, or the, your threshold for saying, I'm not going to do what these people are doing. I'm going to check for myself. In other words, you value your internal signal over this external signal. Every, every one of us has a different like uh, setting in that regard. So at a certain point, there's so many people waiting and it could just be two for the most part. It's only, it only takes two, two that every other person that shows up will also wait. And they also make the external signal even stronger for the next person. And what you have there is a cascade. It only takes a few people doing something for every other person who arrives new to the situation to take on the same thought, feeling, or behavior. And you would have to have new information to go into the system. So somebody would have the door to have to open up and the professor say, what are you doing? Or you need somebody whose threshold for conformity is like way different, a real rabble rouser, somebody who's a real punk, uh, you know, somebody who's uh, willing to be subversive to just open the door and say, come on in, everybody. And this cascade effect takes place all across social networks. It's like the, the surface of the ocean. It's, it's completely chaotic and moving at all times. People come and go, they move, they, their relationships change, their, their incentives change. So it's never static. Those little balls and sticks are, are popping and moving around. So it means that if you want to uh, 
well, it doesn't it doesn't even want to. It, it, social changes that require something like this, where you need something to happen that other people can use as a signal, they have to happen in a place where people are connected in a very particular way, where when that cluster of people gets saturated, there's enough connections in just the right way to other people with thresholds conformity in a particular way that it will spread from that cluster to the next and that cluster to the next and so on. And that cascade way, just like in the classroom example, what that means is that that vulnerable, they call it a percolating vulnerable cluster that is always moving around. It's just the system is chaotic enough that it's never in one place for one in one time for very long. So if you're trying to encourage a, a change that you want to cascade across the nation, like changing norms related to same-sex marriage, you have to be relentless because there's a lot of luck involved. It's, it's, it's until we have tools that are able to sort of pinpoint where the vulnerable cluster's at, um, you're at the whims of the system. And so you have to keep striking at it over and over again. And, but there's good news there. And here's the, the way I'll wrap this little, uh, this, this very long answer up is that, Duncan Watts has this um, this thought experiment, this metaphor to, to demonstrate why that's not a, pe- a reason to be pessimistic. He says, imagine you're driving through a forest, and, or imagine there's a person who drives through a forest every day, and every day they smoke a cigarette, and every day they throw out that cigarette. And it usually goes in the forest, bounces around, and that's it. It just uh, goes out. It doesn't call the fire. But one day they, they're driving through the forest and they they throw it out the window and it lands in this vulnerable, per, percolating vulnerable cluster, basically. It's a patch of very dry uh, forest that is close to another patch of very dry forest in a place where the topography is just right. And a small fire becomes a bigger fire, becomes a larger fire. And eventually it's a fire that goes across seven counties. And lots of things that could have... that. The, it was the it was the vulnerability of the system that matters here in that many things could affect that. It could be like a firefighter strike or there's something in the forestry department or there was a drought, something. But the important point is that it's the system's vulnerability that matters, not the cigarette. Because when a system is vulnerable in that one particular place, especially, it could be a cigarette, it could be a lightning bolt, it could be a nuclear explosion. It doesn't matter what causes the spark. It just matters that the system was vulnerable in that spot, which means you don't have to be anyone special. You don't have to be a very influential person. You don't have to be very well connected. None of those things matter, which is from an old model of uh, the tipping point model, uh, which he does not uh, support. It's a different model. It's a model that says the system is what matters. And so what do you do? Well, you know, you don't have to reach out to people who are very influential anymore. Things don't go viral that way. Uh, when it comes to changing behavior, at least, when it comes to changing minds, it's it doesn't work the way a virus works, where it just gets transferred to one person, and now you have two people transferring it, and then it spreads like that. It requires getting over that threshold of conformity. It requires considering social costs and social rewards. And you have to find that very vulnerable cluster. You, you, you may not be able to. You just have to keep striking at the system, hoping that one day that strike will be the one that does set off the cascade. And you may have to work your whole life doing that, which means you have to pass down. I say in the book, if it's a hammer that's striking at the system, you need to pass it down to new hands. And that's how most of the changes that have taken place. And that's why those changes seem so sudden and rapid is because that the thing that caused the change, a lot of people say it was Stonewall when it comes to uh, LGBT rights. 
Stonewall happened every day, every weekend in the United States in a different city. It just happened to happen in the right place, the right time that set off a cascade. But what's important to activists or people who want to see the changes in the world is that it did happen almost every weekend. So it was inevitable that it would eventually strike a vulnerable, a percolating vulnerable cluster. David, let me say that was an incredible answer to what was ultimately a very shitty interview question. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. But uh, anyway, this is what happens when you write a book uh, <laughs> and you think about it so much and you know, and you've, and you've edited your chapters so much that you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to just think about all the things I've ever thought about that for a second. hundred <laughs> percent. Let me try and summarize some of the themes that we've touched on so far and kind, kind of draw them together and then see, see where it makes sense to go from there. So one of the things that we started off with was that our beliefs and our values and those sort of constellation of, uh, you know, cognitive elements are in many ways informed by the groups that we're a part of, whether there are groups as children, whether they're groups uh, as adults, or whether they're even just sort of groups that we've been put into on an ad hoc basis. Here's your red jersey, here's your blue jersey. And uh, that has an outsized impact on what we might otherwise think of as just kind of these separate uh, person chopping in the wood, as you described it, individualistic uh, ways of thinking about things. And uh, part of you know how that connects to the, the, um, the collective behavior stuff that you were talking about is that we might think that the way at the group level um, thought and opinion changes is very slowly in this kind of graded manner. But actually, there's all sorts of this converging evidence. Uh, your example is drawn primarily from Duncan Watts on how actually the norm is for opinion change, widespread opinion change, to happen really quickly all at once in this, uh, you know, kind of long period of equilibrium. And then these punctuated moments of boom, now things are different. Uh, and how that connects with the individual, with what we were talking about in, in deep canvassing, is... Uh, because there is this kind of tenuous connection between how these group level dynamics work with both the uh, sort of cascade effects and the, uh, you know, rational beliefs formed by social allegiance, it turns out that for any in given individual, there are lots of, let's say, chinks in the armor of, of the rational defensibility of what they believe. And so the point of deep canvassing is instead of coming in hot and being antagonistic about it and saying, look, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong, and in that case, act, uh, activating group mode, group defenses, you say, okay, let's think through your own ideas, what's going on in your sort of uh, cognitive sphere. Uh, let's think through it on your own terms without activating group mode and um, you know, keeping, keeping those defenses down. And that's why that particular approach that you describe in that chapter and from that lab group and with the whole concept of deep canvassing uh, can, can be effective as it is. That's such a good summary. I wish I had written it. That is, <laughs> I wish I had thought that. Um, that is exactly it. And that's why you should never feel like, what's the point? If, you're, if you want to create change in the world, it, it's possible that the person you're talking to is the per, is that is within that vulnerable cluster, and or it's possible that they will eventually 
come up, they'll eventually find their way into that. The change that you create there will find its way to that place at some point, maybe not even in this year, or maybe not this, this decade, but it's, it's possibly that you started the change. And when you think of it in terms of it's the, the system that is important, not necessarily trying to find that going and trying to find that one person who's got the most influence, that it could be anybody, that it could be any individual, that person may not even be aware of the person who did it. That is the secret sauce. And that is true of all the uh, social movements that really did it, you know, in, in civil, in the civil rights struggle, they, the initiatives, especially the stuff put forth by uh, Martin Luther King were like, let's create as many of these groups as we ha can, can of people who are out there who are affecting things and someone somewhere will hit that sweet spot. And that's also what's going on with deep canvassing. It wasn't their intent in the beginning. It wasn't what they thought they were up to, but it certainly is a way to take what we know from all those different scales, the individual, one individual uh, collection of neurons, one mind, one brain, one group, one family, one institution, one geographical region, scale, 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 all these different things that change the way people think, feel, and behave. That's a way that you can affect change. I'm so optimistic that it's punk at this point. I, I, I honestly, it's true. Like I've done, I've talked to people about this who like, I didn't realize I was talking to somebody at Wired Magazine about it and their reaction was like, I thought that this was, I was like, yeah, I'm optimistic. And they were like, how can, it was astonishing that someone was optimistic. <laughs> and I was like, I almost can't help it at this point after looking at it in this way. So yeah, it's just strange that the, the, the punk attitude is to be optimistic about the future, but I, I really am. So I, I've got a quote here from one of the main people you talk about in the deep canvassing chapter and I'll, I'll, I'll read it. It says there is no superior argument no piece of information that we can offer that is going to change their mind. Talking about the, the people they're going door to door, uh, you know, who voted against the uh, same sex marriage bill. The only way they are going to change their mind is by changing their own mind, by talking themselves through their own thinking, by processing things they've never thought about before, things from their own life that are going to help them see things differently. And so there's uh, something that I actually want to kind of uh, get into uh, about this, which so um, my personal area of interest in uh, psychology is, is theory of mind and perspective taking and all that sort of stuff. And you have a, dis uh, a section where you, you discuss this at length and uh, you quote Lee Ross, who is one of the progenitors of this field, uh, about his work with, you know, sort of high stakes negotiation and conflict resolution. And he says um, about his... Uh, experience in Northern Ireland, uh, not once in 40 years of doing conflict negotiation had anyone ever arrived eager to learn how others saw the issue at hand. I'm interested what you make of, of all that and, and, and everything. I did get to spend an incredible afternoon with the late Lee Ross, a titan of psychology, um, and someone who, uh, when it comes to his thoughts on like naive realism, like just just one of the people I most wanted to talk to, period. And I was astonished to hear that his experiences with, with conflict negotiation was that uh, people want other people to hear. They want other people, they want to be heard. They want to be validated. They want to have an opportunity for other people to get a chance to see things from their perspective because they feel like 
that's the problem. You're not, you, do, you, you, aren't, you don't care about the way I see things. And I have something valuable to offer. And there are other parts in the book where I talk about the work of uh, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, where they talk about, you know, that's, that's the system. You know, we, we, we survived as groups because we were amenable to allowing people to add their perspective to the perspective pool when we're trying to decide what we're going to do next. Like, you can imagine proto-humans, three of them on a hill, looking in different directions, and then they uh, hear a sound in the woods and they're trying to decide what they're going to do. Well, they know that one of the people in the group is, was attacked by a bear once, so they're going to always say, oh, it's probably a bear. And there's somebody else who arrived there, they're like, uh, this is their first time out, so they don't know what to do. And there's another person there who uh, is, knows everything to know about that one particular portion of the forest. And that means that when each person contributes their biased perspective and they reach, since it's, time seems to be of the essence, they're going to produce the first thing that comes to mind. So it's going to be the laziest reasoning that then we can go to the second stage of like, okay, let's take all of these perspectives, which I consider valuable, even though I consider them biased. And I consider them valuable, even though I consider that we may disagree. It's the fact that we disagree that's valuable. And when a, we have that, it seems that's, that we have an innate propensity to feel this. And so when you meet a stranger, that's the problem is that they're a stranger. I haven't established rapport. I haven't established trust. I don't know their history. I don't know their experiences. I can't benefit from knowing where they are. And in those conflict negotiation things, and I have spent a lot of time with, with um, Misha Globerman, who, who is an expert in, in negotiation and conflict resolution. And he said that the thing that he always encourages groups uh, that he consults with is that if you push, which is that in the sense that you want something and therefore you push into the conversation wanting it, the other person's reaction is to push back because they want something. And then you will push harder because you've been pushed against. And then they do the same thing and you get the feedback loop of agree to disagree, which is not what resolves a conflict. The only way out of that is to really teach people, encourage people. It's what he does to, to, get into a frame you don't do the push. But that's also what Lee Ross is saying, is that he encourages in his conflict negotiation that you want people to be open to what the other person has is bringing in, because that's what they want most, is to be heard. And that means you have to do what the deep canvasser suggests, which is non-judgmental, empathetic, compassionate listening. You can add to another, in conflict, they say be curious, compassionate, and transparent. Tell the other person what you want. Tell them how you feel. Be curious as to why they feel the way they feel. Be compassionate that they maybe have they have biases. Be compassionate that they may be trapped, locked into some sort of social situation that they, they don't, aren't even aware of. They've had experiences that aren't your experiences. And if you can do that, you go into the, you get out of the debate frame. And the debate frame is trying to win or lose. The debate frame is, is, is a, a situation where you might as well go behind lecterns and get in front of an audience. and once there's an audience, you're going to have this fear of reputation management. Nothing good's going to come out of that. The only person who wins the debate is the person who doesn't change their mind, right? So if you get out of that face-off frame, instead you get into a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder frame, which could be we have a shared goal. I wonder how we could get to that goal in a way that works for both of us. Or it could be in the, it seems we disagree on this. I'm curious as to why we would disagree. Maybe there's something in that. That's the only way that you'll ever get to a place where you can discover the spots where you're wrong. They can discover the spots where they're wrong and you can contribute to something and collaborate on it. 
And it turns out we're very eager to do that. And almost all the techniques I talk about toward the end of the book, that's really what they're doing is helping you lead the conversation so that it goes into this shoulder to shoulder frame. And that seems to be the place where you can get the most value out of conflict and disagreement. And that's what I'm advocating for with this book. So we talked about how belief change happens very quickly at a group level, how basically there's this process of chipping away over time. And then, you know, one of those chips hits the critical, you know, juncture and boom, uh, there's a big, you know, opinion change. But then there's also a similar kind of effect that you explore at length in the book about how belief change happens gradually in individuals. And so this particularly comes up with your stories about the individuals in the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, and this is the passage I mentioned to you uh, about this beforehand that's in line with one of my all-time favorite papers on belief change and honestly one of my favorite all-time psych papers uh, in general. It's the one I sent you called uh, How to Never Be Wrong by Sam Gershman, 2018. Do you mind if I go into... Uh, I am eager to hear it. Let's yeah, hear so it. I, wa I want to explain the, the kind of basic, the basic idea here. So it, it's coming from the same question as your book or one of the main questions of your book, which is why are humans so reluctant to change their minds despite the fact that we're constantly coming into contact with uh, what could be perceived as contrary evidence? And so the, the project of this paper is to show that you don't actually need recourse to ideas like innate biases or motivated reasoning, all that sort of stuff when explaining the answer to this question. But in fact, you can get it purely from a rational analysis. And so this is where this concept comes in of ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses. And so this is this term from philosophy of science. And basically what it means is that behind any scientific theory or observation or whatever is, is at play, you have this arbitrarily large number of assumptions and uh, sort of like underlying hypotheses, which you basically just sweep under the rug. So for example, if you're using a, a telescope, you know, there are these optical assumptions about how the telescope is working, but you don't really consider these, you know, things part of the main astronomical theory. So for any core hypothesis, you have this potentially limitless number of difficult to see ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses. Here's the point of that. These ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses form this protective belt around your core theory around your core beliefs. So my favorite example is like, let's say you believe in God. Say you're a Christian and one of your core beliefs is God exists. Um, but it turns out that in addition to this, you'll have all these ad hoc auxiliary beliefs, uh, you know, for example, a literal, you know, kind of interpretation of the Bible. And so if God, if the Bible says that God created the world in seven days, then you learn about evolution and you say like, oh, okay, well, here's this evidence that seems to contradict my belief in God. But what do you do with it? Well, you don't discard the core belief. You say, okay, well, okay, let's think about this. So, you know, if God hadn't created the sun and the moon yet, then what would it mean for a day to be 24 hours? That doesn't make any sense. Therefore, a day in the gen Genesis sense could be billions of years, and God may have guided, you know, the invisible hand of, of evolution through that. So instead, I'm going to modify my auxiliary belief uh, about Genesis, referring to those literal 24-hour days, and this core belief is preserved in the face of what might seem like disconcerting disconfirming evidence. So you definitely derive this in your own way uh, within the book, but I really like this way of framing things, of having these auxiliary beliefs, which I think you can probably, uh, you know, kind of map this onto some of your stories from the Westboro Baptist uh, Church. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting way of framing why it is 
that uh, we hold on to our core beliefs because of this protective belt of ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses. Yeah, I love that. I mean, uh, I and I don't think that actually is, I don't think that it goes against anything in the world of motivated reasoning at all. I mean, it's just another, it's motivated cognition. I mean, you're coming up with reasons for why you believe what you believe. One gets knocked down, you come up with another one. Like, um, it reminds me of moral dumbfounding, uh, the great Jonathan Haidt research where you have somebody, you like ask them, uh, would you be willing to, um, like, he has a bunch of them, like, would you be willing to clean a toilet with an American flag? Some people very much say no. And then you ask why, and they have already prepared through previous research, they know everything that a person might use as a justification for why they feel the way they feel. And they knock them out each time. And eventually the person, uh, they, what they do is they exhaust all their auxiliary hypotheses. And once they run out of them, like they, they basically destroy the belt one thing at a time. And then once they're all gone, the person will go, I don't know why it's just wrong. And then they can, they do it for all sorts of stuff. Like, would you be willing to, to, um, talk poorly about your employer with somebody at another organization? Like some people are very against that. Or if your dog was to be hit by a car, would you be willing to eat your dog because, you know, it's good for the environment and all this kind of stuff. And would you get a blood transfusion from a serial killer? Um, most people say no. And then you're like, why? And then like, they start going, well, I, they come up with something and then you knock it out and then they come up with another thing and you knock it out. And eventually they go, I don't know why it just feels bad because they've richly exhausted to the point where they can't introspect beyond that point. They can't actually access the antecedents to the emotion they're experiencing. Um, it also reminds me of assimilation and accommodation and that that's the Piaget thing where all mind changes through these two mechanisms. Assimilation is to disambiguate the novel information by fitting it into your existing model in some ways. So it turns you can always interpret anything as confirmation of your existing model. It sounds a lot like that. Whereas accommodation is so many anomalies have formed that you can't contend with that it feels like you need to accommodate them in some way. And the model has to fit them in, which means you have to expand the range of your understanding, new categories, new levels of abstraction. And that's the other way we tend to change. Um, one way is change, but the change is in that your model is getting more robust. So it is different than it was before, but you've just interpreted this new thing like evolution. And you're like, oh yeah, that just confirms what I already believed. But my model had to update. I had to somehow get it in there. So if there's a little assimilation, a little bit of accommodation. And I find that thrilling and fascinating. I love that I have a new term to throw into all this. Thank you very, very much. This paper is great. David, you've been super generous with your time. It was a huge pleasure to talk to you and to read your book. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Hey, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. One of my favorite interviews so far. I never get a chance to just nerd out on the actual psychology side of things. Most people want to talk about just the, how do I change somebody's mind and we stay there. So this is one that I, I can't wait to share with people. I got to talk about the stuff that makes me, the, the whole reason I wrote the book and why I was willing to keep typing and typing and typing. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, David. Thank you. That was my conversation with David McRaney. Thanks for listening. His new book is How Minds Change, out now. If you enjoyed this interview, please consider subscribing at againsthabit.com. And I will be back here next week with another episode of Against Habit.